We can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 8. As we continue our studies in Joshua, we're going to look at chapter 8 this evening. We're going to read the entire chapter and look at the entire chapter. So I'll begin reading at verse 1. I call this Yahweh's help at I. Davis calls it combat and covenant. So Joshua 8, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. He commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first, that we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them, uh, we'll flee before them. And you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the people who were of of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. When they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai were called together to pursue them. They pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There is not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way, and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. Now when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city, that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let, uh, let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, 
in the wilderness where they pursued them, and when they all had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city, uh, Israel, Israel took his booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stone a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There is not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Amen. Well, as we've seen, Joshua is that positive foray of the people of God into the promised land as they enter into the promised land to dispossess it and to fulfill God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by giving them this land. And certainly it's founded upon Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is that covenant foundation for the people of Israel. Remember, Deuteronomy is a covenant of works, an external covenant concerning life in the land. If Israel did what was right, they would have blessings in the land. If Israel did what was wrong, there would be cursings in the land, eventually being vomited out of the land. And blessings and curses play an important role in our chapter here this evening. And so the structure of the book really is centered around the land, entering the land, conquering the land, dividing the land, and retaining the land. And we're in that current section on entering the land in chapters 5 through 12. We saw that inaugural victory at Jericho. Then we saw the treachery of Achan last time. How quickly victory gave way to disaster, which led to disobedience, which led to God's wrath. And as the people went up to Ai after Achan took some of that sin from Jericho, the people were routed and they had to purge the evil from among, among them, which they do uh, uh, as, as they stoned Achan and all his family and all his things uh, and burned them with fire and thus appeased and thus propitiated the fierce anger of the Lord God Most High. But now we come to the fall of Ai. We come to that, that city that they could not take initially. That small, tiny city now makes up a big chunk. And it's actually a bigger chunk of verses than Jericho. So I is actually an important section. Uh, we see covenant renewal happen as well in verses 30 through 35. And I think the problem that we can see in these verses is the problem of the curse of the Lord, specifically as we see it related to death. As one violates God's law, 
uh, we see that God will bring curse upon that person, namely death. Certainly we saw that with Achan's sin. We saw that the death that he brought to those 36, we saw how they were disobedient to the Lord God most high. And certainly Israel is an example of all man in sin. If one is in Adam, there is that curse. There is that curse of death that has been brought into this world because of the violation of that covenant of works. If one is not in Christ, he is dead in his or her trespasses and sins. We do not discriminate when it comes to sin. As far as blessings for obedience, uh, the people of Israel was a covenant of works. They do what is right. They'll receive good things in that land. And Yahweh highlights, especially when we get to 30 through 35, that obedience is more important than victory. Obeying what God said is most important when it comes to the old covenant people. Now, thankfully for the new covenant people, we are in Christ Jesus. He is the one who kept the law in its perfection. We have to remember we're operating here as we come into Joshua 8. They're operating under that old covenant uh, old covenant that God has entered into with them. And so in Joshua 8, the Lord gives eye to Israel and the people give Yahweh allegiance and worship. So the Lord is the one who fights for them. The Lord is the one who gives them eye. He is the one who is with them. And we'll look at this idea under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see how Israel defeats I, verses 1 through 29. And secondly, we'll see how Israel worships Yahweh in verses 30 through 35. So no surprise, uh, verses 1 through 29 will make up most of our uh, the bulk of this, uh, the study this evening. So how Israel defeats I, verses 1 through 29. And notice we see the plan of the Lord in verses 1 through 8. And in reality, this is the kindness of the Lord, isn't it? His fierce anger has been turned away. Achan, the sin has been purged from the people with the, the destruction of Achan. And so, so now they can have this favorable presence once again after his anger has been appeased. And so after their stupidity, after their sin, Yahweh now will be with them. And he comes and he gives this assurance to Joshua. And we've seen this pattern throughout the book. Yahweh says something to Joshua as the leader. And then Joshua obeys what Yahweh says, and then he commands it to the people. And then the people typically, uh, for the most part, do what Joshua says. Not all the time, but for the most part. So the same sort of pattern is here as well. And so the Lord comes to Joshua, and he affirms, I will be with you. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. We've already seen this in Joshua 1. Joshua has a great, had a great task after Moses had passed. Uh, how would the people respond to him? Well, I will be with you. I will magnify you in front of the people. I will magnify you in front of the Canaanites. I will be with you. So you need to be strong and of good courage as you lead the people, but also as you go into battle against the Canaanites. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. And so I'm sure Joshua is shaken. We've seen, we saw Joshua be shaken in chapter seven. Lord, what's going on? What's happening? Why is this? Why did we fall at I? Why did these people die? Well, God comes and affirms them again and says, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. And this time, don't treat them lightly, but I will be with you. Take up all the people of war with you. Arise and go up to I. See, I have given into your hand the king of I, his people, his city and his land. So before they go up again, God affirms, I will be with you. I have given them into your hand. 
Uh, but there's still going to be some military strategy involved, but God affirmed, just as I did to Jericho, so I will do to I in verse 2. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. But there's a difference this time. Jericho was a first fruits to the Lord. Jericho was a different type of warfare. It was an act of worship to God Most High. It was the first city that they took. And so and now as they come to the second city, God says, you take the city, but you can have the good stuff. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. If only Achan had waited. If only Achan didn't grab from the, the accursed things that were devoted to destruction. He could have enjoyed. He could have enjoyed the, the spoils of the fall of I. But that is his fault. Man sees something. Man grabs it. Man prefers that rather than man waiting. And so he didn't wait. He was burned. Uh, but the people are going to enjoy some good stuff after they take I. And then Yahweh uh, explains in summary, or the summary is recorded for us, lay an ambush for the city behind it. So God will be with them, but now they're going to still engage in military strategy. And so again, it's going to be more perhaps to, more typical of ancient Near Eastern warfare. I mean, the Jerichoites are like, why, why are you marching around the city? Like, why are you doing that? Why are you blowing those trumpets? Well, this is going to be a little bit more uh, typical military strategy involved, but Yahweh is the one who lays out that plan, and then Joshua conveys that plan to the people, but Yahweh says, I'll be with you, but here's what you have to do. I will fight for you, but you can't just let go and let God. I will be the one who will be with you, but you must go in and lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Yahweh gives this plan, and then we see uh, Joshua convey that, convey that plan in verses 3 through 8. So Joshua arose and all the people who of war to go up against I. And Joshua chose 30,000 men. They only used 3,000 last time. Now they're having 30,000 men. The people are all going up. Oh, sorry, 30,000 are set apart specifically uh, for the ambush. So there's, I can't remember, I don't know the specific number, but the whole people are going to go up. All the men of war are going to go up. The 30,000 uh, will be uh, the ones who are uh, behind the city. So he chooses 30,000. Let's send them away by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Don't go far from the city, but be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city and it will come about when they come out against us is at the first that we shall flee before them. I is feeling good. I is feeling mighty. I is feeling strong. They're going to be like, yeah, we took them out last time. Let's go get them again this time. We can do that very thing. And so there is, again, God will be with them, but there's strategy involved. They're going to bait the people of I. And so the 30,000 are going to be behind. The 30,000 are going to lie in wait. Joshua has Yahweh with them, but Yahweh is a great military general. Yahweh is a great military strategist. And Joshua is a great military strategist as well as Yahweh is with him. And so we're going to lure them out. You 30,000 wait there. Verse 30, for they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us at the verse. They're running away. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. There's that repeat again. The Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Lord will fight for you. Here's what you must do. But don't boast in yourselves. 
That's kind of how the Christian walks sometimes, isn't it? We go by the strength of the Lord, but there are commands in Scripture which God gives us. We must put to death. We must mortify, but we do it in the power of Christ. We must put on, but we do it in the power of Christ. And so when we grow in our in graces, hopefully, we say, thank you, Lord, for helping me grow in grace. Not, I'm wonderful and I'm great. Look at what all these wonderful things I'm doing. There is that tension there, isn't there? And here he's highlighting, you're going to fight. I'm going to deliver them into your hand. Uh, uh, but it is God who does this very thing. I will deliver it. The Lord your God will deliver it. It comes from God most high. That is repeated throughout this section. So Joshua's plan is we're going to lure the men of Ai out, you 30,000, be on the backside, get ready to take that city when they all come uh, marching out of their city in stupidity. And then verse 8, and it will be when you take the city that you shall set the city on fire. And then this is also important at the end of verse 8. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. See, I have commanded you. The Lord will be with you. That's repeated. But also, see, I have commanded you. Obedience plays an important role here. The problem before was disobedience. Yahweh said, Joshua said, don't take from me a cursed thing. What does Achan do? He takes from me a cursed thing and brings a curse upon the people. So obedience is important. Obedience is vital for the old covenant people if they want a fantastic life in the land. And so that is repeated as well and comes up again towards the end of the covenant renewal in verses 30 through 35. But according to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do, see, I have commanded you. So the Lord gives them this plan. Joshua relays that plan. Do what Yahweh says this time. And then verses 9 through 20, we see that plan in action. We see the ambush of I. So we see the ambush set in verses 9 through 13. The plan is set in motion. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. So two cities mentioned here. And we're going to see later on why Bethel and I are so very important and why it's mentioned a lot. Bethel and I on the west side of Ai. And Joshua lodged there that night among the people. And Joshua got up, rose up early in the morning and mustered the people. And he went and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And then we see, and all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley that lay between them and I. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and I on the west side of the city. This is a second ambush. There's the 30,000 that are behind the city on the north side. And then there's this 5,000 in the, in the valley. And that's perhaps in case Bethel comes for assistance or also that the people of Ai will be surrounded uh, every which way. So Joshua, again, there's 5,000. Uh, if, if Bethel comes, we see uh, there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel in verse 17. Uh, there is another ambush set as well with the 5,000. And then verse 13, and when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. So the ambush is set. Then we see the ambush in action, verses 14 through 17. 
Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle. He and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. He wasn't paying attention. He wasn't aware. He was pride cometh before a fall. And verse 15, and Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. Their plan is working. So all the people who were in I were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So there was not a man left in I or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. I mean, you're like, it's just like a wonderful thing to watch, isn't it? I mean, the suspense, the buildup, we know it's going to happen, but it's still great to see all this happen. I mean, these people of I were high on themselves. Ah, whatever. Let's just all go take them. I mean, they were a small city, but let's all go out and grab them. The plan is working to AT. The king is baited. Israel flees. Now, some people with modern delicate sensitivities are concerned that perhaps the people of Israel are deceiving the people of Ai with their ambush. Brethren, number one, it's warfare. These are the enemies of God. These are not just innocent people. But notice, too, that you don't typically tell the enemy what you're going to do, right? You don't say, hey, we're going to lie in ambush. Here's what's going to happen. If you don't figure it out, sorry, we lied to you. No, they don't know the inward thinking of one's military strategy. And I think Matthew Henry sets the record straight. It's lengthy but helpful. He says, in this stratagem, there was no untruth told. Nothing was concealed but their own counsels, which no enemy ever pretended a right to be entrusted with. Nothing was dissembled, nothing counterfeited but a retreat, which was no natural or necessary indication at all of their inability to maintain their onset or of any design not to renew it. The enemy ought to have been on their guard and to have kept within the defense of their own walls. Common prudence, had they been governed by it, would have directed, directed them not to venture on the pursuit of an army, which they saw was so far superior to them in numbers and leave their city unguarded. But if the Canaanites will be so easily imposed upon and in pursuit of God's Israel will break through all the laws of policy and good management, the Israelites are not at all to be blamed for taking advantage of their fury and thoughtlessness, nor was it in any way inconsistent with the character of God uh, is pleased to give them that they are children that will not lie. So let's not freak out by everything that happens. We always think we're morally superior to the Bible in many ways. We think we would do better. We think we got it right. But I think Henry helps kind of explain that very thing. So the ambush is set. Working to a T, and notice again the Lord's presence, verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. This is very similar to Moses and the Amalekites, where he had to hold his hand up, hold his staff up in, um, in Exodus chapter 17. Certainly the spear is going to be a sign of the ambush, but more importantly, it is a sign of the Lord. This outstretched spear that he's going to hold it up till we see in verse 26. He holds it up until all the P, all of I is taken. It is a sign that the Lord is with them, a sign that the Lord fights for them, even amidst the ambush. It's an assurance to all the people that I will give this. God is giving this city into your hand. So 
So Joshua obeys, and Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And so they did. And then can you imagine being the people of I? You think everything's great. We got them on the run. I mean, they, I mean that's, the bait, that's the bait and switch, right? I mean, Israel, Israel's running away, pretending to run away. Eyes like, this is great. And then they look back and their city's up in smoke. They're, they're, they're all surrounded on every side. How demoralizing. I mean, that would, I mean, I'm sure every, every soldier is probably peeing their pants in this moment. Verse 20, and when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. They had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people who fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers. The ones they thought were fleeing all of a sudden turn around and they're just in utter surround on every side. There's nowhere for them to go. And so the ambush works. The trap has been a success. Yahweh has made it a success. And we see the destruction of Ai in verses 21 through 29. Now, when Joshua and all uh, Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And they struck them down, so they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying, so the people take out all the people uh, of Ai, the people of Israel take out the people of Ai. And it came to pass when Israel made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, when they had all fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All of the city, all of the men, that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000 people, all the people of Ai. They all fall, they are all removed, as Yahweh had said, verse 26, for Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he outstretched out the spear till he utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. So God fights for them. They take out the entire city. They get to enjoy the spoils of war. Verse 27, only the livestock and the spoil of that city. Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. Again, the command of the Lord. And so Joshua burned I and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. So they burn the city and uh, as a sign. And then they hang the king as a sign, verse 29. I know, again, we all freak out with this one as well. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Do you remember what we were taught in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23? That was with respect to what would happen in Israel. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. That was with respect to Israel. That if someone did something deserving of death, they would be hung on a tree. A, to show the main thing, the main reason for that was 
that it would deter other people from doing that very thing. This is a sign of what's going to happen. This is a sign that what could happen to you. But it's also a sign of the curse. This curse, uh, he is an accursed thing before God, as it says in verse 23. Now, there's still some dignity to, towards the dead body. Don't let it hang up there all night. And so they do show that towards their enemies. I know, again, we all freak out. We, this is gruesome and terrible. We would never do that very thing. But there, there's some dignity involved here. We must remember the main purpose for that hanging. And what he's showing here in verse 29, the reason the king of Ai is hanged is to show the rest of Canaan that they're under curse. In verses 22 through 23 of Deuteronomy, it would be for the people of Israel, that man is under curse. But here it's to show that Canaan is under curse. They're going to be taken out for their sin. Now, I think Davis gives a good sort of quote to kind of put this into perspective. He says, but perhaps the living God must stoop to such spectacles, else we might never fear sin. Even at this moment, you and I may not be overwhelmed by the gravity of God's judgment. It is only something that happened to King I back in 1400 BC. Yet, for the hardness of our hearts, God has given us still another picture of his judgment. The king of the Jews hanging on a tree, having become a curse for us. Perhaps we will not take that so lightly. Perhaps we will not say that it is only something that happened back in AD 30. And remember when we looked at Deuteronomy 21, there is that application to Christ who became what? A curse for us. Galatians chapter 3. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree that that curse might be taken away from us. The Lord Jesus Christ bore the judgment that we deserve upon him. He bore the death that we deserve upon him, that we might have life in Christ, that we might have blessing, that we might have joy, that we might have bliss. Sin is a terrible thing. Judgment is a terrifying thing. But thankfully, Christ bore that judgment in our stead. And because of that Christ, because of his sacrifice in our stead, we have the presence of the Lord. Isn't that the promise of God that we have his nearness each and every day? And we have the promise of his nearness forever, world without end. The promise of the Lord each and every day in our daily struggles. I mean, isn't that exactly what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13? And we talked about this when we looked at Joshua 1 and Deuteronomy 31, but in Hebrews 13, in the application section, he talks about various struggles and sins that people go through. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners of, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, and fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Brother, we may not always feel Yahweh's presence. I say that a lot because it's something we need to be reminded about each and every day. But he is with us. 
in our daily grind, in our daily struggles, in our struggles with pet sins, God is with us. In our struggles with difficult relationships, God is with us. We may not be going to fight the people of I, but we have battles with sin. We have battles with our, our, our families. We have battles with friends. We have battles with the world. And we need to know that there is one who is with us. And thankfully, there is one who is with us because of Christ. People have hard jobs that people don't want to get up and go to. People have hard relationships that are difficult to deal with. We need to be reminded that our God is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we need him. Davis says, bear in mind the timing and necessity of Yahweh's help. It comes after sin has been dealt with and judgment executed. Israel must have God's power for even a little I. And the little thing, we might think those things that I've, I've just mentioned are little things, our jobs, our families. I mean, we think they're big things, but, uh, but we might think that we're not doing work for the kingdom in those ways, but they're little things and we need God's help in those areas. He says, with the power of God, the great Jericho could be taken. Without his power, not even the smallest uh, post could be overrun. How utterly dependent God's people are upon God's power for any success. This is what the text preaches to us. We grow in Christ. We are strengthened by Christ. We, have our, we walk in the Lord Jesus Christ because we need him. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in us both to will and to do. And we must remember he will never leave us nor forsake us. We must remember that he will be with us. We must have that theology of the spirit, that theology of his presence as the spirit helps us in our daily grind. So let's remember that. Let us be mindful of that as we walk this world, that Yahweh is with us, Yahweh fights for us, and that's how Israel defeated I. Let's then now look secondly at how Israel worships Yahweh. This will obviously be a lot shorter in verses 30 through 35, but it seems kind of abrupt. They take out I, and all of a sudden, they're on this Mount Ebal. Well, do you remember any other places in the Bible where Bethel and I are mentioned? Genesis chapter 12, when a little guy named Abram entered into the promised land for the first time. Do you remember where he built an altar? 12, 7. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved there from, the, from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. What's the whole book of Joshua about? God's fulfillment to this promise. God's fulfillment to bring the people in. Also as well, we see it in Genesis 33, uh, 18 as well with Jacob. And so when Jacob comes back into the promised land, after being away from it for a while, he builds something in Shechem. He to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, which he came from Padanaran, and he pitched his tent. And he bought the parcel of land where he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. So altars play an important role when it comes to life in the land. They played an important role for God's promises to the patriarchs, 
That is, God appeared to them, and thus they then worship Yahweh. Well, Yahweh appears to them by helping them in the battle at Ai, and now they come and they worship before him. This is why Ai is so important. Ai is important because it's a sign of God's faithfulness to them, but also it's the place where they would engage in the Shechemite blessing, which was promised, which was commanded in Deuteronomy 27. So they enter, so they defeat Ai, then they've come to Mount Ebal and Gerizim. And verse 30, Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. Commandment fulfilled as well. What Mo, uh, Moses had said, what Yahweh had said through Moses, when you get into that land and you get to this place, Build an altar, certainly as a sign of worship to God, but also as a place where you're going to write out that law. Remember, people didn't have iPhones. People didn't have Bibles. They had to have a giant sign that said, this is the law. They had to have it read to them that they might remember what the law said. They had probably better memories than we do because they had to memorize things. Otherwise, they couldn't find it. Books are great, but books make us lazy when it comes to memory. They needed to memorize. They need to have it in their minds. And here is this giant altar that showed that very thing. An altar, an altar of whole stones uh, over which no man has yielded an iron tool. This is in 27 of Deuteronomy. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrifice peace offerings. So they wrote it. They put uh, and in verse 32. And there in the presence of the children of Israel... He wrote the stones a copy uh, on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So it's written. It's a reminder. They also worship there. I know I got ahead of myself, but verse thirty-one, they offered sacrifices and burnt offerings in the land. I mean, this all ties in with Gen or uh, Joshua five. They enter in the land. They do circumcision. They have the Passover. Then they engage in warfare. And it is all about covenant and all about sacrifice and all about worship to God Most High. Who knew warfare could be uh, all part of the worship of God Most High? But it is. It's honoring him. And as Yahweh has saved them, they thus then show and affirm their allegiance to Yahweh. They approach unto him by sacrifice and they write out the law as a Reminder and remember the in Deuteronomy 27, it begins the section about blessings and curses, and that's what Gerizim and Ebal signify. And so, we see the Shechem, it's called the Shechemite Dodecalogue. We see these affirm Dodecalogue just means 12, and it happened at Shechem. So, the Shechemite Dodecalogue, we see what they were supposed to do in Deuteronomy 27, what would happen. And we see it was the amen to the curse, wasn't it? If you turn back to Deuteronomy 27, he talks about who's going to stand on one side. Uh, Gerizim uh, uh, will signify, uh, uh, the, it's in the south, will signify blessing. Ebal in the north will signif signif uh, signify cursing. So they have giant mountains that signify blessings and curses with Yahweh in between, with the, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh but he goes on to, to, to list these 12 commandments, all about what Israel would do, the affirmations. And what we, I think I highlighted then was that it was about total allegiance, things done in secret, things that nobody might know. Uh, allegiance to Yahweh must be total. 
Uh, honoring Yahweh must not just be public, but also private as well. And they all said, amen. Amen to the curse. Or they will say amen to the curse in, Do in Joshua chapter 8. That is, yeah, if we don't do that thing, may the curse come upon us. If we don't do that thing, may all the things mentioned, Deuteronomy 28, come upon us. And so now we come to this covenant renewal, and it's a good time to do it. Because Achan just did something stupid and brought curse upon them. Now Yahweh's blessing them, and they need that reminder of the law, and they need that reminder of the blessings and the curses. Driving to the point in verse 35, commandments. But back to verse 33. So all Israel with the elders and officers and judges, they stand on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant. The stranger as well, as he was born in the land among them. Half again in front of Gerizim, half in front of Ebal. As, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. There's blessings, but also curses as well. And so then, after, again, this is a good time because of everything that's happened. A good time to read the law. And afterward, verse 34, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. So giant altar that has the writing. We have the giant mountains that signify blessings and cursings. And we have the reading of the law before the people. Total allegiance to Yahweh. Obedience must be total. All the commandments. Mind. Uh, uh, they must be done with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, or as the Israelites would be thinking, their thoughts, their words, and their deeds, but also everyone from the greatest to the least, verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them, all of them. As you read the law and as you consider all those things that must be done, no wonder they failed. No wonder they violated God's law. No wonder Achan was like, I want that, glow that glowing thing. I want that. You see, as the Bible unfolds, it's driving to the point where there's only one who keeps the law in its perfection. The old covenant is not sufficient. The old covenant is only about life in the land and it is only about uh, only an external covenant. But for the people of Israel, if they wanted a good life, they had to do what Yahweh says. Now, we know that they do not. We know that they have their problems. Joshua's positive. Judges, Kings, Samuel. There's not there's not great stuff there. But God is still gracious throughout all of that, all driving to the point where we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect in every way and thankfully brethren we worship god because of him through him and by the holy spirit we worship him according to the blessings of the new covenant our sins are forgiven in all our word thought and deed when you think of psalm 24 who shall ascend the mountain of the lord he who has a clean hands and a pure heart 
do you have clean hands and a pure heart by yourself? Do you have clean hands and a pure heart in your actions? There's only one. And it's through him that we get to approach unto God most high. His active obedience. That's why active obedience is vital when it comes to justification. When I say active obedience, I mean Christ who kept the law in its perfection. Christ kept it. Christ dies as a perfect sacrifice. That's his passive obedience. That, uh, he, but he is the one who obeys, and that righteousness is imputed to us that we might dwell with God by the Spirit and worship the Lord God most high. The only way to have blessing and this dwelling with God, this goal of creation, which is dwelling with God unbroken, is found in Christ, because Christ who became a curse for us. If one is in Adam, they are still cursed. If one dies in Adam, they are cursed forever. But if one is in Christ, there is great blessing in him. And because of this, because of what he has done, we approach Christ on the Lord's day or approach God on the Lord's day through Christ, who is our sacrifice. It's by his blood. How do we walk? By, by the Holy Spirit as we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and we worship God according to his ways, not according to what we wish. Worship is the highest privilege. Worship is the highest privilege, and it ought to be our greatest joy, and it ought to be according to what Yahweh has said, and if we do it according to what Yahweh says, he is pleased to bless us, and thankfully he has blessed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a blessing that we get to come and worship because of a God who fought for us, Christ who crushed the head of the seed of the serpent, and our God who has given us that blessed eternal gift. And it's with him there is perfect happiness because of Christ. Adam broke that bond. Israel can't earn it. Christ does and gives us the blessed gift of dwelling with God by his blood. Praise be to God for Christ and his obedience that we might dwell with him forever. So let us pray. Our good God, thank you for your eternal plan of redemption. Thank you we see its execution in time and space, and thank you that we see it in the unfolding of redemption by way of covenant. We do thank you for the old covenant. Thank you for what we learn from it. Thank you that it teaches us uh, things about blessings and curses. It teaches us that we cannot keep your law in any way. And it shows us and points us to our Christ, who is the, 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 the fulfillment of it, who is the one who keeps the law and the prophets, who didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill in his life and his death. And thank you that he does so. Thank you that because of him, we have clean hands and a pure heart. Thank you that because of him, we get to approach unto you to sing your praises and to proclaim about the king of glory and so may we love to worship may we love to gather may we view it as our highest privilege to enter into your house and to sing your praises thank you that you walk with us day by day as well thank you that we are reminded each and every lord's day of your nearness but also we are rejuvenated and strengthened by your spirit as we all have remaining corruption please help us in our battles with sin Please help us to be careful with the words that we say. Help us to be careful with the things that we observe. 
Help us to be careful with the actions that we engage in. And thank you that all our sins are forgiven in Christ, past, present, and future. And so we pray that you would you dwell with us by your spirit, uh, that you would be near to us by your spirit, that we would know that nearness. Thank you that you have promised never leave us nor forsake us. Help us not to covet. Help us to be content. And we need your help to do that. We need your help to be thankful. We need your help uh, to be kind to others. We need your help to be gracious to others. We need your help to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So help us to do so by your spirit and by your word. And thank you that every Lord's Day we get to come and enter into your house. For better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. That we not view worship as a drudgery, and we not view it as a wearying day, but may it be that market day of the soul. And may we love to think of you. May we love to set our mind on the things that are above what Christ is, and thank you that we can approach unto you through Christ, who is the Lamb of God. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.